Jim Dennison is a longtime pastor who writes a daily newsletter combining current events with biblical truth. And I don't know he, I don't know how he does it five days a week, but he does it. And so today, it's called The Daily Article with Jim Dennison. And he has a, a summary of where he's going in the article, uh, October 2nd, 2019. The read time is five minutes. In the Daily Article today, why Iran is such a threat to Israel, Secondly, a modern-day miraculous movement, and then three essential principles for spiritual awakening. That's a lot to cram into five minutes. That would take me about six hours. But um, he can do it, and he does it well. So his first point, Iran is committed to destroying Israel. If you read the news, I mean, this has been going on a long, long time. But it's heating up. Uh, Denison says, said, when I was in the Holy Land last week, I asked several of my Israeli friends to identify the external threat that most concerns them, and each of them answered instantly and emphatically said, Iran. But then he goes on and says, yeah, there's bad news coming out of Iran, but there's also good news. And the good news is this. The church of Jesus Christ in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. There's a new documentary that he cites called Sheep Among Wolves, which is a two-hour documentary about the revival taking place within Iran. Uh, even Iran's intelligence minister agrees that Christianity is spreading in his country. Uh, several factors explain this remarkable spiritual awakening. Uh, number one, the commitment of the church is to disciple-making. The commitment of the church is to disciple-making. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples. Make disciples. What did Jesus do with the 12? He was making them into disciples. Christ followers. He goes on and says, Christian leaders in Iran don't seek converts. They seek disciples. One Iranian church leader explains, if you plant churches, you might make disciples. But if you make disciples, you will plant churches. <laughs> That's the New Testament. The disciple-making movement leads people to become conformed to the image of Christ and sanctified like him. They are not just reading the Bible for information. They are reading the Bible to get transformed. That's Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Word of God is designed to change us. Our model inside Iran is that we don't convert to disciple. We disciple so we can convert. Very interesting. The second factor is the role of persecution. There's a ministry called Open Doors, which is a community of Christians who come together to support persecuted believers in more than 60 countries. They rank Iran ninth on the list of countries persecuting Christians. And yet, if an Iranian leader were asked, what if I told you that the best evangelical for Jesus was the Ayatollah Khomeini? Uh, well, some of you guys are young and you don't remember this guy. But back in the 80s when they took, they took our embassy and the Ayatollah Khomeini came over and the big revolution took place in Iran, <clears throat> he explains that the Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light, showing people that it is a lie and a deception. After 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia, according to them, they've had the worst devastation in the 5,000-year history of Iran. Persecution of Christians 
has not only led Muslims to leave Islam, it's also purified the church. And see, this is what happens when historically, whenever the church gets persecuted, it gets purified. And the false believers leave. The leader notes, what persecution did was destroy the church that was not comprised of disciples. There are professing believers who really don't know the Lord. So I'll say it again. What persecution did was to destroy the church that was not made up of disciples and destroy the church that was about converts. It's more than just getting a decision. We're to make disciples. All these church planners found that converts run away from persecution, but disciples would die for the Lord in persecution. So Denison asked the question, when facing opposition to your faith, are you a convert or a disciple? Which brings us to 2 Peter, which we've been studying. So 1 and 2 Peter written between A.D. 64 and 68. Just a little background real quick, if you haven't been with us. In 64 A.D. under Nero, a great persecution, horrific persecution began against the believers, against the Christians. Um, Nero had tried to, didn't try, he burned down the city of Rome because he wanted to rebuild it and be remembered for centuries. But it backfired on him and People were up in arms, so he had to spread rumors that it really wasn't him, it was the Christians, and so they started this horrific persecution. And Nero would die four years later. But that persecution, Paul was beheaded during the persecution, Peter was crucified upside down, Christians were burned alive as torches, it was horrific. That's the context of 1 Peter, and it's still going on in 2 Peter. So when persecution is going on, the people that are in the church, you can pretty much count if they're, if they're in the church during intense persecution, they're believers. They're not faking it. They're not just professing Christians with their mouth because their lives are on the line. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and if you know anything about his story, for years and years and years before he became a pastor and a hymn writer, he was the captain of a slave ship that would make its way from Western Africa into the different part, mostly the Caribbean. And uh, he was hard-hearted. He, he was, uh, well, as he said in, in Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a wretch. A horrifically hard-hearted man. Um, but the Lord got a hold of him and changed him. He became a pastor, uh, wrote hundreds of hymns. He, uh, he was also a prolific letter writer, and his letters were so well done and well thought through scripturally that uh, I have volumes of his letters in my study. Um, in one of those volumes, he recounts a situation where he visited a young woman in his church who was dying at a very young age of what they would call lingering consumption, uh, probably tuberculosis. She was a sober, prudent person of plain sense who could read her Bible, but had read little besides her Bible. So uh, a young woman of the working classes dying, slowly dying of this horrible disease. Uh, Newton supposed she had never traveled more than 12 miles from her home. A few days before her death, Newton visited her and prayed with her and thanked the Lord that he gave her now to see that she had not followed cunningly devised fables. As we'll see in a minute, that's right out of Second Peter. At this last remark, the woman repeated Newton's words and said, No, no, not cunningly devised fables. These are realities indeed. Then she fixed her eyes on Pastor Newton, reminding him of his weighty vocation and the seriousness of truth. Now get what she said. Sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the gospel. 
I have often heard you with pleasure, but give me leave to tell you that I now see all that you have said or can say it is comparatively but little. Nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity in full view will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truth you declare. Reflecting on the woman's final days, Newton recalled that in all she spoke, there was a dignity, a weight, and evidence, which I suppose few professors of divinity, when lecturing from the chair, have at any time equaled. He found in her testimony, as he often did in visiting the sick and dying, what he called corroborating evidence of the grand truths of the gospel spoken by God in his word. In other words, when you're facing death, the reality of this comes into full focus. Oh, sir, the young woman exclaimed, it is a serious thing to die. No words can express what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. And then Kevin DeYoung, who quotes the story, writes this paragraph. No words can express what is needful in our dying hour. But there are words to sustain us in that moment and in every moment from this hour until that. They are the words of truth, the words of life, the never failing, never falling, Christ exalting, spirit inspired, God breathed words of scripture. Sticking with the scriptures may seem like a light thing now, but we will feel the weight of it someday. There will come a time when it will be shown whether our lives were founded upon trivialities or realities. There you go. Jesus talked about in Matthew um, 7, the two men. The foolish man built his house on the sand, and when the storms came, everything he built was destroyed. He says, that's the man who hears my words and does not listen to me. But the wise man heard his words and obeyed, And he said, the wise man is like the man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the winds blew, his house stood. Why? Because he had built his life on the foundation of the rock, Christ Jesus. Uh, We are either building our lives on trivialities or realities. And it all comes into focus as we face death. The Christians in Iran, the Christians in North Korea, the Christians in China face death on a daily basis. The Christians in Hong Kong can see oppression coming. It's not a matter of when they're gonna take away the freedoms, they're taking them away. It's coming, they know it. Uh, Some will die for their faith. That's when these truths really come into focus. And that's what 2 Peter is all about because they're still in the midst of great persecution. They also have the threat of false teachers. And as we've said before, the danger of false teachers is that false teachers teach false truths about God. And if you listen to them, you have nothing to help you stand when you face persecution and death. You have nothing to sustain you. So what you believe about God is critical and the only thing that we have to tell us correctly about God are the scriptures. So we camped in these verses for the last couple of weeks. 2 Peter 1 verses 16 through 21. I'm going to read 16 to get the context down through 21. Since we've already discussed these, we'll make some observations. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, that's the phrase that Newton referred to in his prayer with the young woman who was facing death. We do not follow cleverly devised tales. And she grabbed onto that and said to him, that's right, pastor. (laughs) These are not cleverly devised tales. These are the things that get you through as you face the ultimate reality of life coming to an end. 
And as Os Guinness has said, the end is really not the end. You don't go out of existence. Jesus was very clear about that. There's heaven and there's hell. So the decisions, the choices that we make here are absolutely critical forever because the end is not the end. You may want it to be, but the end is not the end. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. He's talking about, as we saw last week, when he and James and John were on the mountain with Jesus and Jesus was transfigured with the glory of God. And then Moses and Elijah appeared in Luke chapter 9. And they heard a voice saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. This, this happened, Peter is saying, it's not some cleverly devised fable tale. It's not some myth. It's not some... Um, Walt Disney story. It's not Star Wars. This really happened. Oh, and by the way, Peter's not letting up on this because Peter's facing death. It's right in front of him. If you've been here, you know this, but let's go back to verses 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 1. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. As long as I'm in this earthly body, I'm going to remind you of these truths, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my body is imminent, as also the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So Peter knows he's going to die. It's, it's just a matter of months. Might be a matter of weeks. But he is going to die soon. The Lord has made that clear to him. So here's Peter facing death. <laughs> We're all going to face death. And when you face death... What are the realities? Your life's going along just fine. Everything's good. Everything's cool. And, um, you know, you see the doctor on your annual visit, and, you know, everything's always been good, and then you get a call on your voicemail, please call the doctor at your soonest opportunity. And that, that would probably happen Friday night at 9. <laughs> so you probably won't get him till Monday. So you got the weekend to go, well, what's this about? I mean, everything was fine. He wouldn't be calling. He wouldn't be asking me to call. I mean, all, and all of a sudden, what do you got? Anxiety. Well, what is this? And then they say, well, let's take a look at that. Let's do the, uh, yeah, let's go in and x-ray that. Or let's do a biopsy. And then you got to wait. Isn't that fun? Everything's been cool. This reality of life. Life comes to an end, but the end is not the end. 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, so I want to camp tonight on verses 19, 20, and 21, although we've been there the last couple of weeks. And the reason I want to camp there is that What's taught here is under uh, great attack, relentless attack. Basically, Peter is saying three things in verses 19, 20, and 21. And this will pretty much be our outline tonight. Number one, he's saying scripture is the word of God. 
Scripture is the word of God. Secondly, the word of God is no less divine because it is given through human instruments. And by the way, Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book, Taking God at His Word, this is his three-part outline. I'm just borrowing it tonight. So secondly, the Word of God is no less divine because it is given through human instruments. See verse 21? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, 20 says no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation or someone's own uh, perceptions or someone's, no, they were men moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved, men moved, uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a minute. Thirdly, what he's teaching here is that the Bible is without error. The Bible is without error. Now, those three things, Scripture is the Word of God, that's under attack. The Word of God is no less divine because it is given through human instruments. I guarantee you that's under attack. It's, it's under attack in Christian churches and it's under attack in Christian colleges. How can God give a pure word through human instruments that are sinful? Thirdly, the Bible is without error. That's under attack. How can we believe this in the day and age in which we live? Let's go back to the first one. Scripture is the word of God. I'm going to quote from DeYoung here, Kevin DeYoung. And we should understand, guys, this is really important, that we want to have the same view of Scripture that Jesus had. And DeYoung summarizes this very well. So what view of Scripture did Jesus have? He writes this. Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with the language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill scripture, and his teaching always upheld scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He never for a moment accepted the legitimacy of anyone anywhere violating, ignoring, refining, or rejecting scripture, ever. Jesus believed in the inspiration of scripture, all of scripture. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scripture. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture. He believed this Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. This, then, can be the only acceptable answer to the question posed at the beginning of this chapter about Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. It's impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus submitted his will to the Scriptures, committed his brain to studying the Scriptures, humbled his heart to obey the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus, God's Son and our Savior, believed his Bible was the Word of God down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest specks, and that nothing in all those specks, in all those jot and tittles, and in all those books in his Holy Bible could ever be broken. That's pretty good. (laughs) 
Just read the Gospels. It's everything he said is in there. Everything. Yet we're constantly told that no, Jesus is wrong. Scripture is not the word of God. Well, he was God. Wouldn't you think he'd know? You say, well, you're making a premise there. Yeah, I am. But everyone's making premises. Secondly, this great criticism is made that the word of God is, or, or the, this is de Young's assertion, and it's taught in the text, but it's attacked. The word of God is no less divine because it is given through human instruments. Peter wrote scripture, Paul wrote scripture, Isaiah, Daniel, David. And the thought is, well, they're sinful men. And how can God's pure word be transmitted without error through sinful men? Why is that a problem? Is the arm of the Lord too short that it cannot save? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, but you see, these things come up constantly. The uh, young makes a great point when he writes this. In other words, these, these men were flawed men. Yeah, they were flawed men. They were sinners. Yeah, they needed a savior. Yeah. Well, how can they write the, 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 the word of God without error? De young says this. And you know, I do this study at noon, and um, you really don't ever want to come to that study. Because <laughs> when, when and we have, you know, 40, 50, 60 guys that come to it, but I'm just kidding around. But when I walk in there, I've got so much stuff for each of these points that, uh, <laughs> but see, then I go home and then I work on it and I edit it and I, cut it down and I make it more concise. And the guys afterwards today, the different guys that we're talking to, they had these glazed looks in their eyes and say, man, that, that, was, that was heavy. That was pretty deep. I said, yeah, it was. But I said, I wanted you to know there are reasons we believe the scripture. And they said, oh, that was good. It was just, I mean, I gotta go home and take a nap. I mean, that stuff was intense. So I've adjusted it a little bit here. But we're still, we're still going to get the meat. Okay? So DeYoung writes this in regard to human authorship of Scripture. Jesus, once again, he goes to Jesus. That's always a good place to go. Jesus had no problem referencing human authors of Scripture like Moses, Isaiah, David, and Daniel. But they stand in the background. They are the sub-authors working beneath the principal author of Scripture, namely God himself. So Jesus can quote from Psalm 10, saying, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Mark 12, 36. Just as Paul in Romans 9, 17 and Galatians 3, 8 can use Scripture as the subject where God is the Old Testament speaker. Holy Spirit, God, Scripture, they are not three different speakers with three different ranks. They refer to the same divine author with the same divine authority, which is why Jesus can talk down the devil by saying, it is written, and why he can claim without any hint of controversy or hyperbole that the creator of the universe wrote Genesis. For Jesus, Scripture is powerful, decisive, and authoritative, because it is nothing less than the voice of God. But he used human instruments to pen it. He used their personalities, their vocabulary, their temperaments. Their, it's, it's all in there. He governs that. He oversees it. Psalm 119, one of those verses in the longest psalm in the Bible says, the sum of thy word is truth. What's the sum? It's the total of all the parts. We say, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is the sum of thy word is truth because God can.
cannot lie and would not permit his word to be polluted. Cannot God oversee that process? Does he not have that power? Of course he does. This is not a problem. To us, you see. But the natural man can't understand the things of God they are because they're spiritually discerned. Their eyes are blinded. Thirdly, this passage is teaching that the Bible is without error. And this is, this is under attack constantly, not only from outside the church, but from inside the church. I, I remember in the 80s, going to the Congress on Biblical Inerrancy. And all of these Christian scholars were called together because things were being taught in quote-unquote evangelical seminaries that were absolutely contrary to Scripture. Uh, Harold Denzel wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible. And he exposed a lot of things being taught in seminaries that had historically been evangelical but had departed far from the word of God. And usually when that happens in a denomination, when liberalism takes over, it's usually gone. But it was interesting because the Southern Baptist seminaries were pretty much gone. They had professors in there, and you had people that love the Lord and the gospel is being preached in Southern Baptist seminaries, yet they're sending their money in Southern Baptist churches, and they're sending their money to support these seminaries, and a lot of these guys were teaching absolute liberalism to young pastors. There's a, there's a Southern Baptist church not too far from our house, and I cannot tell you how many people I have met over the last 30 years that used to attend that church. But that Southern Baptist pastor does not believe the Genesis account. He does not believe that uh, Jonah is a true story. He doesn't believe the miracles of the Old Testament. Most of them he just dismisses. Why? He was taught that in the Southern Baptist Seminary 50 years ago. The good news is, is that the Lord worked and there was a resurgence and that pretty much got cleaned up in Southern Baptist seminaries. It did get cleaned up. The same thing happened uh, with one of the Lutheran, uh, the Missouri Synod, Luther, uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans that had gone off the deep end and then they had some battles, a battle for the Bible, and they took the seminaries back. This never goes away. But you had to have a Congress in the 80s, several of them, for these different biblical scholars to get together, can the Bible be trusted? Because there are all these attacks, attacks coming, not from outside the church, inside the church. I referenced this book by John Lennox last month when I preached a couple Sundays for Chuck called Can Science Explain Everything? <clears throat> Lennox has three PhDs. He's Professor Emeritus at Oxford University. He's probably in his late 70s. Uh, still cranking, still speaking, still writing. He's brilliant. Uh, he's a scientist. And he talks about the two worldviews, atheism and theism. Atheism, there is no God. Theism, there is a God. Uh, talks about the fact that between... Um, 1900 and 2000 of the Nobel Laureate prizes that were award, awarded, uh, over 60% of them were awarded to Bible-believing Christians. And the question always come up, comes up, can science and Christianity mix? And he makes the point that one year they'll give the Nobel Laureate to a scientist who's a 
atheists, and the next year they'll give it to a scientist who is a Christian. It's not, that, it's not science and Christianity that don't mix. Historically, the great scientists of history have been Christians. It's that they have two different worldviews. If your worldview, your way of looking at the world, is that there is no God and there's no possibility that there is no God, you're going to come out at a certain place. If you start there, you're going to come out at a certain place. If you believe that there is a God, you're going to come out at a different place. Um, this is a great book. The title is, Can Science Explain Everything? John Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X. I bought a lot of copies and given them away. It, it's, it's so well done, it's just about 100 pages. But it is tight, it's concise, it is so well reasoned. I mean, honestly, his arguments are pretty much irrefutable because they're based on scripture, they're based on truth. He has a chapter, chapter seven, can you trust what you read? It's about the Bible. Can you trust what you read? It's about the authority of the Bible. It's about what we're looking at here in 2 Peter 1, verses 19, 20, 21. It's about the attacks on scripture. Can you trust what you read? There is um, the fact of the matter among millennials who have been raised in evangelical homes and evangelical churches and evangelical schools and taught the scriptures. There is a, a large number of them that are falling away from the faith. And the reason they are falling away from the faith is that they have been pounded with these attacks on scripture. That the scripture is not the word of God, that it cannot be trusted. Can, can you trust what you read? And the answer they've been given is no. And this doesn't cease. I want to take a little time on this tonight. Uh, I've got Linux, and I'm going to quote from Linux. But I also want to quote from um, Timothy Paul Jones, who has written a book called Misquoting Truth. Misquoting Truth, uh, Jones is a pastor with a PhD from Southern Seminary. He's an excellent scholar. But this book, Misquoting Truth, the subtitle is A Guide to the Fallacies of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. So there is a very, very popular scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. It, uh, it, it's about whether or not the New Testament manuscripts can be trusted. Books that discuss New Testament manuscripts and their reliability usually don't sell real well. Um, they just don't. Ehrman has sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies of his books. Uh, he is he is leading the charge on attacking the veracity of the Word of God. He's a professor at University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, interesting story. Um, Went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton College, very strong Bible teaching uh, schools. But then he, went to, then he went, to, went to Princeton Theological Seminary, which used to be the bastion of biblical authority until the 1920s. And that's when he began to have serious, serious questions, and he eventually just walked away from the whole thing. Um, Timothy Paul Jones 
in his book talks about the fact that he had a similar experience to Bart Ehrman. He began to read some of the same text and some of the same books and some of the same liberal criticisms of the New Testament documents and it absolutely rocked him to the core like it did Ehrman. Um, so in his introduction, Timothy Paul Jones quotes Ehrman. This will give you kind of a summary of what Ehrman is saying. What good does it do to say that the words are inspired by God, the words of the Bible, the words of the New Testament, if most people have absolutely no access to these words, but only to more or less clumsy renderings of these words into a language? He's talking about the copies. How does it help us to say that the Bible is the inerrant word of God if, in fact, we don't have the words of God that God inerrantly inspired? Because do we have the original manuscripts? The answer is no, we don't. Well, that sounds pretty serious. Yes, it does. Well, how in the world can we know that what we're reading is what God gave to Peter and to Paul and to Daniel and Isaiah? We'll get to that. Uh, Ehrman goes on and says, we have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals. Uh, despite the fact of Bart Ehrman being described as a new breed of biblical scholar, Jones says, most of what Ehrman has to say isn't new at all, and it isn't. The concept in his books have been current among scholars for decades even centuries, which Ehrman and his editors have done is to rework these scholarly conclusions for mass consumption, simplifying the concepts and sensationalizing the titles. That's why this guy is so big, and that's why he draws great crowds and hundreds of thousands of readers. Um, going back to Timothy Paul Jones, he was on a parallel track with Ehrman. You know, he, he went to a, a Bible college Believe the word of God, you know, was absolutely without error, da, da, da. And then he, wait a minute, we don't have the original manuscripts? No, we have copies. Well, wait a minute. And it kind of threw him. And then he started reading some books that he was assigned. And it really threw him. And he got into a crisis, and he couldn't sleep at night. And he became tortured and tormented. And he describes it in several pages. Uh... He would be in the he closed the library at night, reading these uh, critiques of the viability and the authority of Scripture, and it just rocked him to the core as it did Ehrman. But he says in his book, "So I did the only thing I knew to do. I kept at it and I kept reading. I kept reading everything I could find, searching for some glistening of truth." Then he mentions a couple books that really helped him work his way through this. F.F. Bruce's The Canon of Scripture and the New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? I've got several copies of this book. It's a little paperback. It's a bastion of... of Bruce was a phenomenal scholar. He did all the homework. Uh, he convinced me that the authors of the Gospels weren't recording mere myths or legends. They were intentionally writing historical documents. That's what Peter was doing when he said, we saw his glory on the mountain. I mean, this really happened. The author's purpose is to be sure were theological, but the theology was rooted in real events that had happened in the context of human history. As opposed to liberal scholars who said, say, well, those events couldn't happen because they were miracles, and miracles cannot happen. Why is it that miracles cannot happen? Because you're starting from atheism, that there is no God. This is where I blew the guys at noon out of the water today. <laughs> because I, bought, I brought this book by Vern Poitras, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary. He was brilliant. 
Uh, and the book is called Inerrancy and Worldview. And he's got a section on miracles and how they work and creationism. And you can only read about two or three pages at a time because then your brain starts to explode. And that's what was happening. I was seeing blood come out of guys' ears at, at lunch today. And, you know, they knew it was significant, but it was like they were losing their blood pressure very quickly. So we had to back off a little bit. If God's there, God can do miracles. If God has all power, anyway. And then he also learned from the works of Bruce Metzger, who was one of Bart Ehrman's professors at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is a liberal seminary. Uh, Metzger's work, the canon of the New Testament, the text of the New Testament, I learned how, despite, now catch this, the hundreds of thousands of variants in the Greek New Testament, and there are hundreds of thousands, we'll get to that in a minute, it's almost always possible to determine the original reading of the text. What's more, I learned that none of these points of textual uncertainty undermines any crucial element of Christian faith. Did you get that? It doesn't undermine anything in the Bible. Are there variants? Yeah, there are. And maybe if this is new to you, you're kind of shaken tonight. That's all right. We don't have to fear truth. We don't have to fear any facts. Um, yeah, there are variants. Can I give you another quote or two? What are you going to say, no? <laughs> now follow this, okay? This might be shocking. In the first place, Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, grossly overestimates the significance of the differences between the manuscripts. Ehrman's estimate of 400,000 variants among the New Testament manuscripts may be numerically correct, but what Ehrman doesn't clearly communicate to his readers is the insignificance of the vast majority of these variants. And he's going to give one example. Okay? Most of these 400,000 variations stem from differences in spelling, word order, or the relationship between nouns and definite articles. I mean, you were thinking about this this morning over breakfast, weren't you? But there are scholars that spend their lives on this stuff and thank God for it. Variants that are easily recognizable and in most cases virtually unnoticeable in translations. For example, the Greek words for we and the plural you look very similar. And copyists frequently confuse them. But does it ultimately matter whether you are children of promise or we are children of promise? Galatians 4.28. Does that change the text? Does it change the meaning? Does it change the significance? Does it? No. Okay? Stay with me. Because this will be on the midterm. <laughs> and there is a science called textual criticism. You go down the seminary and take classes on textual criticism. Can we really trust the scriptures? Um, Dan Wallace is a professor at Dallas Seminary. A world-class New Testament scholar. In the summers... Dan goes into these different monasteries. He's been doing it for years, and they've gotten to know him, and they trust him because they, there are still many, many copies of manuscripts that have not been made public. But as, as Dan has gotten to know these different individuals who oversee and have preserved and kept these manuscripts through a mutual friend that we have, at Apple, the latest technology is given to him, and they unroll these texts, and he makes high-definition copies of them, and they are preserved and saved. And then they go back, and they do their comparisons of textual criticism. One more paragraph. The science of textual criticism is not, despite the way the name strikes our ears, concerned with criticizing the biblical text. In this context, criticism means analysis or close investigation. The task of the textual critic is to look closely at copies of ancient documents and to determine which copy is closest 
to the original document. Okay, now here's where you might need to take one of those vitamin B12 pellets. Okay, we're gonna go a little deeper and then we'll come up for air, all right? Here's what textual criticism assumes. It's impossible for all the copyists to have made the same mistake at the same time. That's very logical. In other words, since changes creep into the manuscripts one at a time in different times and places, it's possible to compare several manuscripts to discover when and where the error occurred. The textual critic can then, in most cases, figure out the original wording of the text. I've been to Israel, and I have seen, I've driven by, and it was hot in May, and I have been by a synagogue, and I've seen rabbis inside making copies of texts. And the way that they did this, at the end of a day of copying, they would count. They would check every line. They would double check. I mean, it was under the most intense scrutiny to make sure it was accurate. Uh, Robert Plummer, in his book, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, quotes D.A. Carson. He says, D.A. Carson, a leading biblical scholar, notes that the New Testament autographs, the original writings, can be reconstructed with roughly 96 to 97% accuracy. Furthermore, no text in question affects Christian doctrine. That's critical. No doctrine's affected. That is, all Christian doctrines are firmly established without appealing to debated text. Most unsolved textual issues have little or no doctrinal significance. So when you hear there are all these 400,000 variants, you gotta weigh it with the facts. You guys still there? You still breathing? Okay. We're asking the question, can you trust what you read? Let me quote from Lennox, okay? Now why am I doing this? Because I'm doing it to let you know there's a reason we say that the Bible is the word of God that has been given to us without error. We're not just saying this because it's some cleverly devised fable, it's some cleverly devised myth. Quite frankly, you take that young woman who was dying of consumption in John Newton's church, who was not highly educated, pretty much could read her Bible, and that was it. She said, Pastor, I'm facing death, and this is not based on, clearly, on, on cleverly devised fables. This is true, and it's stabilizing me, and I'm not afraid because of what Jesus has done. But we're living in a time where the assault on the word of God, which stabilizes us, is unending, and it is comprised of cleverly devised tales. That's where the cleverly devised fairy tales are, is on the side that's attacking the veracity of the word of God. You don't have to be afraid of truth or of facts. So in that chapter, can you trust what you read? Lennox says, before we look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the next chapter, we need to ask about the reliability of the documents in which it is mainly contained, which is the New Testament. Popular opinion about the New Testament varies wildly. For instance, it never ceases to amaze me how many people will casually deny the existence of the historical figure of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. The real experts on such matters are the ancient historians, and in entrance of fairness, we need to listen to them. Among them, whether they are Christians or not, there is a remarkable consensus regarding the existence of Jesus and the things that he did. For example, Oxford scholar Christopher Tuckett, author of a Cambridge University text on the historical Jesus, says of the evidence, 
All this does at least render highly implausible any far-fetched theories that even Jesus' very existence was a Christian invention. The fact that Jesus existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for whatever reason, and that he had a band of followers who continued to support his cause seems to be part of the bedrock of historical tradition. If nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. Jesus existed. In the, as for the New Testament, many people's opinions seem to be best on wild conspiracy theories, and they seem unaware of how overwhelmingly strong the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament text actually is. The common view is that the New Testament text is untrustworthy or is invented much later than it claims to be is simply a fake. It simply does not stand up to serious examination. So real quick, the manuscripts. First, there are a number of manuscripts that we now have. There are nearly 6,000 partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament in the original Greek language that have been cataloged and over 18,000 in early translations into Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, and other languages. Added to this, there are thousands of quotations of the New Testament by the early church fathers who wrote between the second and fourth centuries. If then we lost all the New Testament manuscripts, from these quotations alone, we could reconstruct a large proportion of the New Testament. In order to get some idea of the weight of this manuscript evidence, one needs only to compare it with the documentary evidence available for other famous texts. This is overwhelming. For instance, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome around A.D. 116. The first six books of the Annals survive in only one manuscript, which was copied in A.D. 850. While books 7 and 10 do not survive, there are 35 manuscripts of books 11 to 16, the earliest of which is dated to the 11th century. The manuscript evidence is therefore very sparse, and the time gap between original compilation and the earliest manuscripts is over 700 years. He makes another example, then says this. The main point to be made here is that scholars treat these documents as authentic representations of the originals in spite of the scarcity of the manuscripts and their late dates. In comparison with these, the New Testament is the best attested document from the ancient world by far. By far. So what do you got? 35 manuscripts versus 6,000. Copying errors. All right? Many people still hold that the New Testament cannot be reliable because it's been copied out so many times. This idea is without foundation. Take, for example, a manuscript that was written about A.D. 200 and is therefore now some 1,800 years old. How old was the manuscript from which it was originally copied? We don't know, of course, but it could very easily have been 140 years old at the time it was copied. If that were so, then the manuscript was written out when many of the authors of the New Testament were still alive. Thus, we get from New Testament times to today in just two steps. Furthermore, whereas there are copying mistakes in most manuscripts, it is virtually impossible to copy out a lengthy document by hand without making some mistakes, no two manuscripts contain exactly the same mistake. Therefore, by comparing manuscripts, it is possible to reconstruct the original text to a point where expert opinion holds that less than 2% of the text is uncertain. With a large part of that 2% involving small linguistic features that make no difference in the general meaning. Same thing as D.A. Carson said. Moreover, since no New Testament teaching depends solely on one verse or passage, no Christian doctrine is put to doubt by these minor uncertainties. Last quote from Sir Frederick Kenyon, one of the great archeologists of all times leading authority on ancient manuscripts, director of the, beauty, uh, the British Museum, Frederick Kenyon said this, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. Uh, the question is, 
Can I trust what I read? Uh, Peter Drucker, the great business executive, had a great line. And his line is this, and I read it 30 years ago, and I use it all the time. And it applies here. When the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. The facts are clear. You can trust the scriptures. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word, for the truth of your word, for the veracity of your word, that you have watched over your word, that you have preserved it, that you have given it to us. We thank you that Jesus is the the living word and he gave us the written word and that the sum of thy word is truth. It's not an idle word for us, Deuteronomy 32 says. It is our lives. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Give us a great confidence in your word. Give us a great confidence as we read our Bibles. We're reading your words that you want to convey to us. It's for us today. We can stake our lives on it. We can hold on to your promises and you'll perform them because you watch over your word to perform. Thank you for the truth. And we pray these things in the name of the one who is truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.